Amen. I want to invite you to open up the scriptures this morning to Luke chapter 11. As we now look to the Lord, the one on whom we wait, the one on whose word we rely, let's look to him together. I'm going to read our text and then we'll pray, expecting God to speak to us today. Luke chapter 11 in our text this morning will be verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with the same request that you would teach us how to pray. We come with the same need as these disciples. We need to be taught. We need to be instructed by you. And we believe that you have the answers we need. We believe we rely on your word. We wait on you. We look to you with our need, with our hunger, Confident that your word is true, it is eternal, it's unchanging. And it is by these truths that we are instructed. It is in this word that we see you and we come to know you as you are. So we pray, Lord, that you would do your work now in us as your disciples in this generation and that you would work in us, train us, teach us for your glory. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Prayer is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? It's a central aspect of what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. Remember, the first and greatest commandment, right, is to love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Prayer is one of the ways we do that. It it expresses that love for God. It expresses trust in God. It expresses that we are hoping in him, depending on him, and that we worship him. And so God is concerned that we would pray, but he is not just concerned that we pray. God cares about how we pray. That matters. And so Jesus, our master, teaches us. He teaches us how to pray. The title for this morning's message is The Kind of Prayer That Pleases God. Because I think as Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says, when you pray, say this. It implies that there is an approach to prayer. There is a way of praying to God that does not please him. And as those who love Christ, as those of us who are believers, who have been bought with the blood of Christ, and we've received salvation and life through Christ, and we are waiting on him, we seek to honor him and to love him, we want to pray in a way that pleases God. So in this text, which is often perhaps most famously known as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us four marks of God-honoring prayer, the kind of prayer that God delights to hear, the kind of prayer that God delights to answer. The setting for our story right here in verse 1 is that Jesus himself is praying. He's praying in a certain place. Luke doesn't tell us where. 
And this is something that we've seen over and over again throughout our study in Luke's gospel. Jesus would often pull away to pray. In Luke chapter 5, we're told that even when there's great demands on him, even when there's many people with many needs that are flocking to Jesus, he would often pull away to spend time in prayer. He would withdraw, Luke 5, 16, to desolate places and pray. This, this pattern of prayer was a priority for Jesus. And Luke especially draws our attention to Jesus praying in conjunction with significant events in Jesus' ministry. We see Jesus praying in Luke chapter 3 at his baptism. We see Jesus praying in Luke chapter 6 uh, right before he calls the 12 to himself. We see Jesus praying right before he asks his disciples that crucial question, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. We find Jesus praying at the transfiguration. We find Jesus in Luke 22 at the end of his ministry praying alone in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is the perfect example of consistent and faithful prayer. He does it at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, and all throughout his life on this earth. So Jesus, no surprise, is praying in a certain place, and that's when we find this request. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Apparently, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, this, this very unique and eccentric prophet-type character who had, had ministered and preached and baptized in the wilderness, apparently he had taught his disciples a specific approach to prayer something that would have set them apart in practice from mainstream Judaism. Perhaps John was putting his own stamp on things, giving a unique and a timely emphasis to his disciples, saying, this is the way you need to be praying right now. And we know that Jesus was often compared to John. Um, Herod even thought that Jesus was John come back from the dead. Uh, Jesus is often questioned in terms of his comparison of his ministry to John's ministry. In chapter 5, some scribes and Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, why do your disciples eat and drink when John taught his disciples to fast? There's a comparison going on here. And apparently Jesus' disciples had observed his faithful prayer life, and just like John's disciples had been specifically instructed by their master, they want Jesus' instruction on prayer. They say, teach us, Lord. Lord, Master, you're our teacher. We're following you. We want to know how is it that you want us to pray. This is encouraging because we often see the disciples' immaturities throughout the Gospels, don't we? They're often an example of what not to do. We see their failures. We see their unbelief. We see their weaknesses. We are well aware that these disciples are not perfect men, and they often get it wrong. But here, the disciples actually get it right, and we would do well to embrace this teachable and hungry posture that this unnamed disciple is showing in this text. Lord, teach us to pray. How do you want us to pray? Jesus gives his answer. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. I want you to notice here what Jesus doesn't say when they ask him, teach us how to pray. Jesus doesn't tell them how often they should pray. He doesn't specify how long they should continue in prayer. He just assumes that they would pray. He says, when you pray, Whenever you pray, this is what you should say. 
In scripture, we find examples in the Bible of people praying early in the morning before the sun rises. We find people praying in the morning after the sun has risen. We find example of people praying like Daniel three times a day. We find people praying at noon, people praying in the afternoon. We find people praying in the evening. In scripture, we find people praying throughout the night, at midnight, all through the day and night. Paul would later encourage us to pray without ceasing. So the time of prayer is not really Jesus's concern right here. He also doesn't say anything about the posture of prayer. Again, in scripture, we find examples of people standing, people sitting, people kneeling to pray, lying down in prayer, lying down on their face in prayer, lifting up their hands. We find people gazing up into heaven and hanging their head and looking down. And Jesus doesn't really seem too concerned with what the posture of prayer is for his disciples. He also doesn't say anything about where they should be when they pray. Jesus himself prayed in the wilderness. He prayed on a mountain. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He even prayed while he was on the cross. So location doesn't seem to matter. We find others throughout scripture praying on mountains, some praying in caves, others praying in the temple, others praying in homes, even one man praying from the belly of a great fish, Jonah. So the location doesn't seem to be what Jesus is primarily concerned by. There are many things about prayer that are really not essential things that are flexible, but the content of our prayer, the substance of our prayer, the heart with which we approach God in prayer, that is what Jesus is concerned with, and that's what he will teach them. He tells them what they are to say, what they are to say, which raises a question. Is Jesus giving us here a formula? Is he giving us here perhaps even something we should memorize and repeat Is this supposed to be strictly rehearsed and repeated in verbatim? Is this a formal prayer? Or the other option would be, is this simply an example? Is this a model that informs how we pray, but it's not something that's supposed to be memorized and and repeated? Well, I think there's certainly nothing wrong with repeating this prayer. It is hard to pray better than Jesus. Would you agree? And Jesus, in fact, says something very similar to this when he's teaching publicly in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus says publicly, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If Jesus emphasizes these specific points on two separate occasions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. If he's going to spell this out twice, two different settings, then it makes sense that he really does want us to pray these things. But I also think the differences between these two texts, the fact that there's slight changes in wording, the fact that Matthew's text includes even additional phrases, I think that shows that it's not the exact words that matter so much, as much as the themes and the emphases and the focus of these prayers. So while this prayer can be repeated verbatim, that's a great thing to do. I believe Jesus is primarily interested in giving us a pattern that we can follow. These are guidelines that can be expanded on. These are hooks that we can hang our our prayers on. Don't forget, it's not vain repetition of rote words that pleases God. 
Matthew 6, 7 says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You could say 150 Our Fathers each day. That's not exactly what Jesus is getting at here. God desires earnest and heartfelt prayer that believes his word and seeks him. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. So this prayer is not meant to restrict our language when we come to pray to God. Rather, it's meant to be a launch pad. It's something that gives us categories so that we can channel and direct the pouring out of our heart towards God. So how does Jesus say that we should pray? Well, in what follows, in Jesus' answer, I want to draw out four marks of the kind of prayer that's pleasing to God. Four descriptions of prayer that can shape and instruct and guide our prayers. And the first we find in verse 2. Number one, God is pleased by personal prayer. He's pleased by personal prayer. And he said to them, when you pray, say, then note this first word, Father. Father. The kind of prayer that pleases God is not some prayer that's addressed to whom it may concern. It's not to some impersonal force of cosmic energy that we are appealing. We do not pray to an unfeeling, uncaring God who is far away, who is transcendent, but is in no way imminent or personal. We do not pray to your honor the judge, although God is infinitely just and although he is the judge. We do not pray to your majesty the king, although Jesus is the king and although God does reign from eternity. No, we are called to pray to God as a father, as a father. It's our relationship to him as our father that actually encourages us to come to God with eager expectation. It shows that we believe he loves us. We believe he will meet our needs. Jesus expands on this, as we'll see next week in verses 11 through 13. You can look down the page. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We are encouraged to come to God as Father. To call God Father was unique in Jesus' day. This may be familiar to us, but it would have been groundbreaking to these disciples because in the Old Testament, God is described as a father, but he's described as a father to the nation Israel, corporately. At times, he's even described as a father to the king in a special sense, but God is never addressed personally by individuals as a father in the Old Testament. Maybe that's something you haven't noticed before, haven't heard before, but that helps us understand exactly what Jesus is doing here, teaching his disciples to call God Father. Jesus calls God Father. He's changing things. He does this because he has a unique relationship with God the Father because he is God the Son. He has this eternal and perfect relationship with the first person of the Godhead. John 5.18 tells us this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, this is something that no one had done before. But Jesus does. He claims God personally as father. And Jesus invites his disciples to join him in addressing God as father. 
And this is revolutionary. John 20, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. As Jesus raises from the dead, he's telling those early witnesses, not only is God my Father, he's yours as well. It's a great privilege to address God as Father. And despite what some mistakenly assume, God is not a Father to all. We do not believe in in the universal fatherhood of God. It's only those who are redeemed, only those who have believed in the gospel that can approach God and address him as Father. John 1 verse 12 says, To all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, to be a child of God is not our default position as human beings. That's something we have to become. And it happens through faith in Christ as we receive Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It is those who have a, a saving faith in Christ who have a right relationship with God as Father. Those who are in Christ can pray to God as Father. Those who receive him, who believe in his name, they're the only ones who receive this great privilege. Those who are not in Christ, those who do not believe Scripture describes them not as God's children, but as those who are lost. Scripture describes those who don't believe in Christ as God's enemies, as being alienated from him. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 42. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Not everyone can call God father, but we who do love Jesus, we who have received his word and believed in his promise, the Bible teaches us that we've been reconciled to God and that we've been adopted into his family, which comes with incredible privileges. It comes with the blessing of the Holy Spirit being given to us. And it comes with the promise of a future inheritance. That's what Romans 8 teaches. Romans 8, 14 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is a great privilege to be called children of God, to be adopted into his family, to be given the Holy Spirit, to be promised an inheritance. And it's with that confidence that we approach God and address him in prayer as Father. Since God is our Father, we need not be afraid. There is no fear of condemnation. We need not be afraid of death. We need not be afraid of the devil. We need not be afraid that we will be left alone, that we will be left to our own resources without God's presence and his help and his provision. Our father loves us. He's taken us into his family, chosen and adopted us by his grace. We now belong to him. And because of that, God is pleased that we would draw near with the intimacy and trust of a child who knows that his father is good and gracious. This is the starting point for our prayers. God is pleased by personal 
prayer that approaches him on the basis of his fatherly love towards us. So God is pleased by personal prayer, but there's a second mark of prayer that pleases God. God is also pleased by reverent prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. This is reverent prayer. Yes, there is a right kind of familiarity with God that that we can enjoy as his children. We come to him as a father. Such familiarity is part of what it means to believe that he loves us and, and to trust in him. But this relational closeness that we've been given with God, it does not mean that that we can come to God apart from reverence and respect. Our prayer must never lose that sense of awe at who God is. To hallow his name means to acknowledge and honor the holiness of his name. Hallow is related to that idea idea of holiness, of setting God apart, to, to recognize that he is distinct, that he is different than us. You see, God's name is so much more than a title or a label. When we hallow God's name, we're referring to to really the sum of his essence and his character and his attributes. His name represents all that he is. There is no one like him. He alone is holy and eternal and perfect. And we are seeking to recognize and acknowledge and honor all of that when we say, hallowed be your name. In Exodus 15, 11, in Moses' song, he cries out, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Moses writes this song as the bodies of the Egyptian army is washing up on the shore. All of their gods have been put to shame. Pharaoh has been humbled. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God just answered that question. And Moses bursts out in song and says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Isaiah 6.3, we meet a prophet who has a vision of God in his holy temple. And he falls on his face because he sees these angels crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's who God is. When we pray to God, there must be a sense of reverence, acknowledging what he is like, a sense of lowliness and humility before him. In the Psalms, God condemns wicked men by saying, you thought that I was one like you. God forbid that we would ever come to God assuming that he is small, assuming that he is like us in certain ways, as if we can put him in a box and control his will and and come to him with demands. As if our sin is not worthy of eternal damnation and judgment. No, we come with reverence and awe. Hallowed be your name. Although others may take his name in vain, although others may scoff at him, others may mock him, others may deny him, others may forget him, others may radically underestimate him, we are called to hallow his name, to lift it up as holy. Anything less is frankly unacceptable to God. Hebrews 12, 28 says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So although we do come to God and pray personal prayers, there's an intimate relationship that we have been graciously given with God. Our prayer should never be flippant, never disrespectful. Although we should be honest with God and pour out our heart, we should never accuse him. 
It's bad counsel when people say, get angry with God and tell him how you feel. No, God is to be hallowed. He is to be treated as the thrice holy God that he is. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not some Santa Claus-like figure in the sky. Jesus is not your homeboy. He is the maker and the creator of all things, the triune God, the judge of all the earth, the great I am, and he deserves our humble and reverent worship and praise. God is pleased by reverent prayer, and Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, Father, hallowed be your name. There's a third mark of prayer that pleases God. God is also pleased by God-centered prayer. God-centered prayer. We see this in verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is the heart of God-centered prayer that is consumed with God's purposes for his glory. You see, God's glorious purpose at creation was to establish a kingdom, a kingdom on earth that would be ruled by one who reflected his glory. Adam was created in God's image. Adam was the prototypical king of this earthly kingdom that was meant to display God's goodness and glory. But we know that that first king, Adam, failed. And now sin and death reign. Now Satan perverts and attacks everything that is good. But thankfully, God has not given up on that original plan, has he? No. He's not given up on this kingdom program. He sent Jesus, the second Adam, a better Adam, who would also be the son of David, the perfect king, who would rescue and redeem mankind and who will one day even restore creation itself by his power. He will destroy his enemies and he will reign over God's kingdom forever. That's God's kingdom plan. That's really the story of Genesis to Revelation. And it is through this kingdom program, through establishing his kingdom, redeeming his people, triumphing over his enemies, this is the way that God is magnifying his glory. This is how he's displaying to us and to the heavenly realms exactly who he is and exactly what he is like. And God's plan for his kingdom is radically God-centered. God is God-centered. God pursues God's glory. He does not share his glory with another. He establishes his son ruling over his creation for the sake of his name. That's why Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six: from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things to God, for God, for his glory. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are aligning our hearts with God, seeking his glory to be displayed in the world. Jesus came preaching the good news of this kingdom. Um, We've seen that in Luke. He's telling people that God is keeping his promises and God is at work and he's bringing salvation through his son. Jesus came to further this plan by accomplishing redemption at his death. There needs to be subjects for this kingdom who rightly worship and obey the king, and that's what Jesus is doing when he dies on the cross. He's saving a people for himself. But there is more to come. The coming of the kingdom is more than just Jesus' death on the cross and the individual salvation of sinners. There's more. The coming of the kingdom means God's good purposes of salvation and restoration and rescue And recreation will all be brought to fulfillment in God's time. There's more to come for this plan. So we pray 
for God to do it. We pray for God's kingdom to come. We pray for all of those little steps towards the great and grand fulfillment of those promises. We pray for God's cause to move forward. We pray for God's purposes to progress. We pray for God's truth to triumph. We pray for God's name to be vindicated. That's what we're praying for when we say, your kingdom come. Habakkuk 2.14 gives us this little glimpse into God's future purposes. It says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, it shows a heart that is God-centered with a desire for God to be glorified. And it shows that we've recognized and embraced our little part in the story and that we are willing to, to play whatever role he may have for us. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying that he might be seen and received and known and feared and loved and obeyed and worshiped. This is a God-centered prayer. We echo what the psalmist writes in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let me ask you a question. How often do your prayers start and end with you? It's easy for us to do that, to pray prayers that are not God-centered, but to pray prayers that really are concerned with our kingdom and with our glory and with our purposes, with our desires, with our plans. There is a place to bring our needs before the Lord, as we will see. But God-centered prayer seeks the advancement of his purposes, his kingdom, for the sake of his glory. This is what pleases God. God is pleased by personal prayer, reverent prayer, God-centered prayer. And the fourth mark of prayer that's pleasing to God is that God is pleased by dependent prayer. Dependent prayer. We see this in verses three through four. While Jesus has given several really declarations, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, now he instructs us as to the requests that we ought to bring to the Lord. He says, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Only God has no needs. That's part of what it means to be God. He is, just as he is for himself in, in the sense of pursuing his glory, God is also of himself. He's independent. He needs nothing else. But we're not like that. As creatures, we are dependent on God for everything, for life and breath and everything else. We are dependent on him for both our physical and our spiritual needs. And Jesus instructs us to bring both kinds of needs to the Lord. He says we should pray for our physical needs, to be dependent on God, to provide. He says, give us this day, give us each day our daily bread. And the word here, forgive, indicates an ongoing provision. That God would continue to give and to provide on a daily basis what it is we need for life. Just like the manna fell each day in the wilderness, we are called to look to God on a daily basis to provide for us the things that we need. We ask God to provide for our necessities. And the good news is he promises to provide. He promises to do so. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the pagans, those who don't know God, 
They seek after all these things. And your, father, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. God is concerned with meeting our daily needs. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing promise. God will meet your needs. Ask him. Ask him. Now, God may not provide everything we want, but wants are different than needs. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. But the prayer that pleases God does look to him to meet these needs. I think we fail to to follow this pattern for prayer when we're really focused on seeking from God those things that we don't need. But Jesus doesn't give us instructions on begging God for things that aren't necessary. And sometimes I think we, we struggle to trust that God will meet our need because there's something we've prayed for, something we've desired, something that we thought we needed that God said no to. We need to receive God's answer of no in those moments as a gracious reminder that perhaps we don't, really don't need those things. But I also think we fail to obey this instruction when we don't ask God for the things that we need, when we instead rely on our own strength, when we rely on our own wisdom, when we rely on our own resourcefulness to meet our own needs. When we don't pray to God and ask him to meet our needs, what we're really indicating is that maybe we don't think God is actually concerned with our needs. That's wrong thinking about God. That's unbelief. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. Your heavenly father who clothes the the, the grass and the flowers, who feeds the sparrows, he knows what you need and you are far more valuable to him than the birds of the air. When we don't ask God to meet our needs, perhaps it shows self-confidence. We really think we can figure it out on our own. I'll find some way to hustle and scrounge up the money and cover the cost and get from point A to point B. But Jesus instructs his disciples to come and to ask God to provide. God invites you to bring those needs before him. But not only do we have physical needs, even more pressing, we have spiritual needs, don't we? And Jesus tells us to pray about our spiritual needs. Verse four, he says, forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There's two spiritual needs here that that Jesus encourages us to pray about. The first is forgiveness, And the second would be protection, both things that we need spiritually. We are encouraged to come to God, yes, with all the confidence of a child coming to a father. We come to him, addressing him as father. But we also ought to come to God with a humble awareness of our need for grace, our need for mercy, our need for forgiveness and cleansing. We are really dependent on him for that. You need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. And listen, God is the only one who can grant you that forgiveness. Again, if we're talking about bad counsel that floats around in Christian circles, what you need is not to forgive yourself. It doesn't really matter what you think about yourself. What matters is what God thinks. And the forgiveness you need is the forgiveness that comes from him. There is a sense in which all our sins are forgiven at the cross. When we come to Christ We recognize our great need for forgiveness from God, and we repent, and we trust in his promise. We look to Jesus' death, and we cry out for mercy. There's a sense that we are forgiven once and for all at the cross. That's the, the truth of justification. 
We are forgiven for all we have done and all we ever will do. Because at that moment, when you are justified through faith in Christ, you are declared to be righteous. Your status is no longer one who needs forgiveness. Your status is now one who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the glorious good news and the promise of the gospel. And that forgiveness is not based on anything we have done. It's based on the perfect work of Jesus. We don't earn it. It's not something we negotiate to receive. And in God's courtroom, when he declares you righteous in Christ... When he says it's finished, it is, once and for all. So when Jesus encourages his disciples to come here and pray for forgiveness, he's not talking about that kind of judicial forgiveness. That's already ours in the gospel. But there is a relational kind of forgiveness that is still needed for believers. Because even though we may be saved, we still sin. And when we sin, there is a right response towards God and it's a response of confession. That's that first step in repentance. Unconfessed sin will interrupt our fellowship with God. It doesn't change our status in God's courtroom. It doesn't jeopardize our eternity in heaven. But what it does jeopardize is our joy in Christ, our feeling of closeness to our heavenly father. We are not under condemnation as believers when we sin. But there may be contamination. That's a different matter. What Jesus is instructing us to do is to offer this request for sanctification, for cleansing, that the God who is holy, whose name is hallowed, that he would make us holy by cleansing us from the defilement of sin. I mean, this is what Jesus was teaching when he washed the disciples' feet. In John 13, verse 8, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. He's, he's embarrassed almost that Jesus would, would bend down and start cleaning the grime off of his feet. And Jesus used this moment of service to teach a spiritual lesson. Jesus answered Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We need a cleansing that only Jesus can give. Simon Peter picked up what Jesus was laying down. He says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He says, if that's the case, I need the whole bath. I know that I'm a sinful man who needs cleansing. Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. He's indicating here that if you're already forgiven, if you're already reconciled with the Father through Christ, you don't need to get saved all over again. You don't need the, the blood of Christ to be shed all over again. That is done. But you might, need, you might need your feet washed. Regular confession of sin ensures that there is nothing hindering our fellowship with the Holy God. And in God's mercy, he offers us a fountain of continual cleansing in the gospel. 1 John 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God offers us that ongoing forgiveness that we need to enjoy a close relationship with him. A lack of regular confession in our prayers, it shows one of two things. It shows that either we are blind to our own sin, that we just don't see it, either because of our pride and arrogance or because of our ignorance of God's law. We don't even realize all the ways we're sinning. If you're not confessing, that shows you're blind to your failures, or it shows something else, that you are presumptuous. You either think, that you can cleanse yourself or you think that God probably owes you that forgiveness. 
Jesus teaches us to approach with a kind of honesty and humility that is quick to confess sin, to bring our need for cleansing to God, the kind of uh, request for forgiveness that says, Lord, would you forgive my sin? We ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We, we are those who understand the importance of forgiveness. We're not hypocritical. We're not depriving other people of forgiveness, asking it from you. And we know that if we as sinful people can forgive others, surely you will forgive us. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus teaches us to confess and to bring our ongoing need for cleansing to God. But it's not just our past sins. It's not just that spiritual need that we're to bring to God. It's also a concern for future temptation that Jesus teaches us to pray about. He not only says that we should pray, forgive us our sins, but look at the end of verse four. And lead us not into temptation. This is a prayer for protection. You see, those who worship a holy God, we are called to strive for holiness. The one who wholeheartedly loves God will hate sin and will seek to flee from it. Yes, forgive me for the sins in the past, but also keep me from sin in the future. We strive for this holiness. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us we should flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says we should flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11 says we are to flee from the love of money. 2 Timothy 2.22 says we should flee from youthful passions. The life of a Christian is a life that is seeking to avoid sin, to flee from temptation. And let's just be honest. We need God's help with that, don't we? We don't do a very good job left to ourselves trying to flee from sin. So this prayer of lead us not into temptation, it's another expression of humility. It's acknowledging our weakness, that we need God's help. If we are going to walk in holiness, we know ourselves and in the right situation, under the right circumstances, we might crumble. We might give in. And so one of the ways we guard against sin is by praying for God's protection, calling upon him to preserve us, to lead us not into temptation. Now, I want to make clear, this does not mean that God might tempt us to sin. Far from it. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God may lead us into tests. He may lead us into trials. And the word for temptation is trial is really the same word. God does lead us into times of difficulty. And in the midst of such difficulty, yes, those difficulties themselves furnish challenges and temptations. But Bear in mind the temptation itself, that doesn't come directly from God. That comes from our own flesh. That comes from the world. That comes perhaps from the devil. God is not the source of temptation, but God is sovereign over that temptation. And so we rightly pray, lead us not into temptation because he's able to protect us. He never leads us into temptation, but he can lead us out of temptation and provide a way of escape. Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise, friends, that God will provide a way of escape when you are being tempted. And one of the ways he provides that way of escape is when you pray and you ask his help, you ask his protection, you ask for his provision of grace. And he sovereignly uses your prayers to furnish the fulfillment of this promise to open that door so that you can run, so that you can say no, to bring scripture to mind so that you can combat those temptations. The prayer that pleases God claims this promise and seeks his protection and help so that we can walk a life of holiness, a life that is pleasing to him. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Personal prayer. Reverent prayer. Prayer that is God-centered, that seeks his purposes and his glory. And prayer that is utterly dependent upon him to meet our needs, whether they be physical or whether they be spiritual. You know, usually the question we wrestle with when we think about prayer is, do I pray enough? And the answer is probably no. I don't know if any of us has ever prayed enough, right? And it would be easy to preach a message that guilts you and coerces you, says you need to pray more. But that's not really the aim this morning. The text this morning gives us a different question to ask ourselves. Not am I praying enough, but do I pray the kind of prayers that are pleasing to God? Do I pray according to the pattern that has been set forth for disciples by the master, by Jesus himself? That's really where we should start when we think about our prayer and whether or not God is pleased by that aspect of our life in Christ. Ask yourself, do I pray the kinds of prayers that please him? Prayers that are personal, rooted in the confidence of his fatherly love and his goodness. Prayers that are reverent, that humbly acknowledge the holiness and the greatness of his name. Prayers that are God-centered, not overly focused on me and my comfort and my desires, but prayers that pray big things for the sake of God's name and his purpose and his kingdom. Do you bring dependent requests to God showing that you really are leaning on him for everything that you need? May we learn from our master's words and offer prayers to God that follow this pattern. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we can come to you with the knowledge that you love us having adopted us into your family. Father, we thank you that we have a right relationship with you through Christ. We've been reconciled to you through him. We thank you for the forgiveness you've already granted us in Christ. And Lord, for those who cannot yet call you Father, for those who are still in their sins, may they see that this is what you offer. This is what you promise to all who repent and believe in the gospel. You promise forgiveness and adoption, belonging you promise your eternal, unchanging, unconditional love. It is such a privilege to be able to come to you as children to a good and gracious Father. And Father, we hallow your name. We recognize this morning that our thoughts of you fall so far short of who you actually are. As Job said, we have heard of you, but it's just the outskirts of your ways. Lord, you are infinite in your glory and perfect in your character. Marvelous in your works and your deeds, perfect 
in what you have revealed to us in the scriptures. And Lord, it is with fear and awe and joy that we cry out this morning, there is no one like you. There is no one who compares. There is no one like you among the gods. There is no being seen or unseen. There is nothing in the spiritual or physical realm that can even compare to you. Lord, I ask that you would expand our heart to have a deeper sense of your majesty and your glory, that we would fear you, that we would honor you, that we would hallow your name as we ought. Father, we come this morning with a desire that you would be glorified in this church, that as your kingdom purposes advance, that you would use us for whatever end you desire, that you would would give us a, a hunger and a longing not to advance ourselves in our own kingdom, I pray that you would help our hearts to be centered on you and your purposes. And Lord, where we have fallen short in this, where we have not hallowed your name, where we have not allowed you to be preeminent in our hearts and our prayers, we ask for your forgiveness. For prayers that are small, prayers that are flippant, prayers that are self-centered and self-seeking, we pray your forgiveness and we thank you that you promised that forgiveness in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us as we go from here, that you would lead us not into temptation. Lord, keep us from situations in which we might be tempted to think less of you, to think wrong thoughts of you. Protect us, Lord, from that impulse of our flesh to love ourselves and to prioritize our own desires and our own wisdom and our own perspective and our own plans. We pray that you would deliver us from evil and help us to be sanctified by your truth as we have seen it this morning. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that when you call us to pray, you tell us exactly how to do it. So may this text strengthen and encourage our faith this morning, and may our prayers be increasingly pleasing to you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.